Good morning, everyone. I usually just kind of jump into the sermon, but I thought I'd take a moment before I jump launch in, right? Because you know once I stop, start, it's like a full court press, so. <laughs> well, let me show you something here. This is a picture of the podium in the General Assembly Hall of the United Nations. This is probably the most powerful podium in the world. From this podium, world leaders speak to one another. From this podium, world leaders represent entire nations to one another. From this podium, declarations of war are pronounced. From this podium, peace accords are promised. From this podium, the future of entire nations are discussed. I've never been in the, the, the General Assembly Hall of the United Nations, but I imagine it's probably a, a pretty imposing thing, a, probably a sense of awe when you ascend those steps to the podium to address the congregation that's there to listen to you. Now, I want to show you another uh, podium, less global, but no less powerful. From this podium, the intentions and the plans and the purposes of the most powerful nation on the earth is made known. The man or woman who speaks from this podium arguably represents the most powerful individual on the planet. Now, I haven't been in this room either, but I imagine that there's still a sense of awe being near that podium. To be so close to such authority must be a kind of heady thing. Now, currently, Jen Psaki is the White House press secretary. She represents the president. That is to say, she speaks on behalf of the president. She speaks for the president. When she speaks from this podium, her words are the words of the president. Her job is not to be Jen Psaki, but her job is to be the current administration to the watching world. You all understand that. So then, what's wrong with this picture? <laughs> now, there's a lot of things wrong with that picture. But the, probably the most primary ones for the purpose of what I'm talking about is that I, unlike Jen Psaki, have not been authorized to represent the president's interests, have I? I haven't been authorized to speak on behalf of the president, and we all know that, and that's why it's partly funny, but it's also partly funny because it's me behind the, the presidential podium. But we also know that it doesn't fit because unlike Jen Psaki, she's been authorized to speak for the president. So when she speaks from the podium, the world listens to what she has to say. Now, in the same way, it would be odd for you or I to ascend the steps of the podium of the General Assembly of the United Nations and speak on behalf of the United States because we have not been authorized to do so. I can't even speak on behalf of the state of California, neither can you. I can't even speak on the behalf of Orange County or Laguna Hills. As a matter of fact, we can't even speak on behalf of one another unless we have been authorized and given that kind of authority to do so. So with that in your minds, and you get that, everyone makes sense of that. With that understanding in your minds, let me ask you this. If we cannot speak on behalf of California, Orange County, the, the city of Laguna Hills, or even one another without being authorized, what makes us think we can represent him? Now, maybe you've never even thought about that, but think about it for a second. If we know that this is wrong, that I can't speak for the president, then how do we know if you are a Christian that
that you can speak for God, who obviously is a much higher sovereign than any world ruler ever is. Now, you might be sitting there saying, no, no, I, don't, I don't speak for God. Who thinks that? But, yeah, Christians do speak for God. I've heard many times Christians proclaim what God wants for them in their life. I've heard many times Christians make proclamations of what God expects, what God demands. That's sensible. My point isn't to dispute that, but it's to draw your conscious attention to it. Now, maybe you don't think you actually speak for or represent God if you are a Christian, but I think you do know something about that that is the case, right? Maybe you do realize that as a Christian you do speak for God, but you've never given it such self-conscious thought as we're thinking about it right at this moment. And maybe you're visiting with us and you're not a Christian and you think that's just crazy. This morning what I hope to do is address this, this kind of uh, important topic and how the local church and your membership in it plays a key role. Now, before I jump into it, let me give a little bit of a, by way of summary, what we talked about in this short series, Who Do Christians Think We Are? Because we've covered quite a lot of material, and if you've been here for the whole series, I hope you're recognizing that every, every message has been kind of giving you conceptual, uh, conceptual framework to think about this, so we're building on it. In our very first message about a month ago, we talked about the issue of our identity, and that as Christians, we can assume a certain identity that while is correct, isn't complete, and so can distort our understanding of what it means to be a Christian or Christianity in general. And we concluded by saying that a Christian is an individual that goes through a fundamental identity shift, that their intellect, their emotions, their volitions, that is to say their, 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 their choices and actions, all of that is transformed. It goes through an identity shift. And in the second week, we kind of talked about what that identity shifts to, and that we are, in fact, a people. As Peter says, a holy nation, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. We, or you and I, are made a we, right? You and I are a we. We are a body of Christ. We are a building unto the Lord. We are the bride of Christ himself. We have been brought into a family. If you are a Christian, you've been adopted, the book of Galatians tells us, into a family. We have an identity shift and transform from being autonomous individuals who live only for themselves into being a part of a new covenant community of people who live for the glory of God, obviously, and the good of his people. That was week number two. And then last week, we learned that this people, this group, this collection, this community is what the Bible calls a church. And I talked about the difference between Christians, which is the plural noun for Christian, and church, which is the collective noun. And that is a collective noun refers to individuals of a species or a group that acts and is treated as a whole, different than just the sum of their parts, something entirely different, that the people of God are constituted into something called a church. Not just Christians gathering, but you become a church. And we talked about what a church is. And a church isn't just a bunch of Christians hanging out at Starbucks reading the Bible, but that it actually has a shape and a structure and an and a, and a, um, oughtness to it, right? There's something about a certain gathering that is a church that another gathering of Christians may not be a church. And we talked about what those three things were. Historically and biblically, it was the right preaching of the word of God. Because the word of God creates the people of God, right? 
And then we talked about the right administration of the ordinances, particularly of baptism and the Lord's Supper, because these two we saw in Scripture were, were the, the evidences of the new covenant community. They were the guardrails, baptism being your entrance, admission into the new covenant community, and the Lord's Supper was the ongoing participatory right of being in the community of God's people. And then finally, biblically qualified leadership that would guard, promote, and ensure the preaching of the word of God and the administration of these ordinances. And when you had those three things happening together, you have, in fact, a church. Now, all of this leads, perhaps, to the very answer to the question of this series, who do Christians think they are? And every week, I provided an answer that was consistent with that week's concept, building blocks, building blocks, right? We're, we're not just people doing our own thing. We're not just knowledge-hungry people. We're not just pietistic people. We're not just activists, but we're transformed entirely. We're all those three things. We're not just individualists. We are a people. We're not just a people. We are a church that is a certain thing. Now, who do Christians think they are? I gave you, eight, I gave you answers. Now I want to give you what I think is the answer this is, when I thought about this series, the very place I started, but realized I can't just start there. I want to build up to that. So here it is. Here's the answer to the question. Who do Christians think they are? Frankly, we are the people that speak for Jesus. If you are a Christian, and there's a lot of layers to this, and that the series started to unpack, but we are the people who speak for Jesus. Now, in this particular message, I want to use a concept that's found in Scripture, but also is very familiar to us in our world that I think will be helpful for us, but all kind of metaphors and concepts do kind of fall apart, so I need you to do a little bit of work with me to get what I'm trying to communicate, and I'll let you know when we get there, okay? So here it is. Here's, so we are the people who speak for Jesus, and here's the concepts I'm pulling from our world and Scripture. It's basically this. As Christians... We are the ambassadors of another kingdom. And as a church, we are the embassy of that kingdom. In both our individual and corporate actions together, we represent, we speak for another nation's interests. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, this ambassador concept, you see that in Scripture, so that makes sense. But you might be asking, well, where do you get the, the embassy concept from? Well, I'll be honest, I am kind of riffing off of Paul's use of ambassador here. But I'm also pulling from what Paul says to the Colossian Christians in Colossians chapter 1. And from what Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3. Notice what he says in Colossians 1. He, speaking of the Lord, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. To the Philippians, Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's the question. What is an embassy? I don't want to take for granted that you all know what that is, but what is an embassy? It is an institution, right, that represents one nation inside of another, right? An embassy is an institution that represents one nation inside of another. An embassy declares the interests of the home nation while being in the host nation. So an embassy represents its home nation while it's in a host nation, 
and it declares its interest, but it does a little bit more than that, too. The embassy also governs and protects its citizens while it's in that foreign land. Now, if you've ever traveled internationally and been in some kind of danger or crisis, you know the value of an embassy. It not only declares your nation's interests, but it offers you protection and a place and gives you privileges while you are in that foreign country. And these two concepts, I think they're, they're, they're helpful in helping us understand how as Christians and as a church, we both do our job in representing Christ to the world. Now, the part that's going to require your, your working with me is here is that in our world, an embassy and an ambassador are two very different things, aren't they? An embassy, after all, is a, a physical structure. It is a building. It has a street address, right? It's a thing. Whereas an ambassador is a person. But as you know in this series, a Christian is an ambassador... And when Christians are a church, they are also the embassy, right? So, so we are not, at, at, at the end of the day, a church is not a physical structure that has a street address. A church is what? Is a people. And so while an ambassador and embassy in our world are very distinct, from the Christian worldview, an ambassador and an embassy, Christians are both an ambassador. Maybe look at it this way. When you're the scattered church, you're the ambassador, but when the church has gathered Sunday mornings, that, our, that kind of thing, we're an embassy. Am I, am I, are you getting that, understanding that concept, right? So, I mean, at some point it does fall apart, but I think it, it helps understand this concept of representing to a foreign world what we're about. Together, we, both do, we, do, we do both jobs of the ambassador and the embassy. When we're out in the world, we are ambassadors. When we are gathered, we are the embassy. Okay, with that conceptual concept in your mind, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. If you are a Christian, what gives you the right to speak for Jesus? Now, I, I kind of know what the answer is going to be because we're evangelicals and we're Americans. So the answer is going to be, well, Jesus, of course. Right? That's what you were thinking. Duh. Why do I got to come to church? I know this stuff. And you would be kind of right and wrong. Let me explain what I mean by that. Jesus gave his church, his people, as uh, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, that, that holy nation, that royal priesthood, that chosen race, that responsibility. Let me say that again. That Jesus gave his church the responsibility to speak for him, and if you are a Christian, and if you are a Christian, you are a part of that, right? Just like if you are an American, you are a U.S. citizen, right? That makes sense. But as I've already established, friends, just because I'm a U.S. citizen, like Jen Psaki is a U.S. citizen, you still knew immediately that this slide was wrong. Why? Why? Here's why. Because it's not whether or not I am a U.S. citizen that is in question. Like, I'm not questioning if you are a Christian by anything I'm saying today and your involvement with the church. I want to be clear on that. The issue isn't whether or not Jen Psaki and I are U.S. citizens. The issue is, the distinction comes down to the fact that I haven't been authorized to speak for the president, yet Jen Psaki has been. As a U.S. citizen, 
I have the right, like any one of you have the right, but not the authorization to speak for the president. And friends, that distinction is really important in understanding the role of the church and the Christian. And I realize, you're like, man, this is like, it's only 10 on a Sunday morning. You're stretching my mind here. I realize I'm asking you to, 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 to think with me, but this is really important. When it comes to the, the kingdom of God, Jesus gave that authorizing power, not to any old Christians out there, but to this distinct group he called his church. Now, I know we have recovering Catholics here, so let me be very clear on this. I am not saying, I am not saying that the church makes you a Christian, right? That is not what I'm saying. What makes you a Christian is the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit as he applies the work of Christ to your life according to God's eternal plan, and you responding to that. That's what makes you a Christian. The church doesn't make you a Christian at all, okay? Any more than an embassy makes you a citizen. Now, I know some of you are real technical, and you're thinking, well, technically, you can go to the embassy and get citizenship. My point simply is, that's not the primary role of the embassy, right? So the church doesn't make you a Christian any more than the embassy makes you a U.S. citizen. But in the same way, you cannot go to some foreign country and simply say, I'm a U.S. citizen, and you better believe it, because I said it, and if you mess with me, you're messing with the good old U.S. of A. No one's going to care no one's going to believe it. It does not matter unless you have a little document, a little piece of paper that is issued by the embassy where the world knows that the embassy has recognized my status as a U.S. citizen and all the protections and privileges and duties and obligations apply to me. It doesn't make me a citizen. It just tells that foreign world he's one of ours. And all the protections and privileges and duties and obligations apply to him. In the same way, the church does the same thing. It recognizes its citizens and extends all the privileges and protections and duties and obligations upon its citizens. Friends, the, the question at the nub of what we're wrestling with here is this. The question we're wrestling with is this. Did Jesus give the church an authority that he didn't give the individual Christian? Now, I know you recovering Catholics are getting nervous, right? Right, Because it's all about the church and Catholicism, right? Or, and other religious systems, it can't be that. I, I'm not trying to say that. What I'm trying to do is balance it out because in evangelical Protestantism, we don't have any doctrine of the church. So this is a really good question. Did Jesus give the church an authority that he didn't give the individual Christian? Do you also want to know why it's kind of like rubs us like, ugh, I don't like that? Because it's challenging our sense of autonomy. It's, it's challenging our sense that there's no authority above me, just me. You're not the boss of me. No one's the boss of me. And we talked about that two weeks ago. Here's the answer, friends. Yes, he did. But it doesn't matter if I think that. It doesn't matter if you think that. What matters? Does God teach that? And so for that, I want you to open your Bibles. Go to Matthew chapter 16. Uh, if you need a, to use our pew Bible, I think it's page 791. Matthew chapter 16, 
Uh, starting at verse 13, if you're using a pew Bible, page 771. Okay, let me turn there myself. Now, we've looked at a couple of these passages in the last couple of weeks, so I hope they're somewhat familiar to you. And I'm going to read verses 13 and 19. And, and, and this has been a pivotal passage. Uh, for If you've been familiar with Christianity, one of the reasons you're familiar with this passage is that this is, as I explained a couple weeks ago, this is the point where, like, the disciples get it. Like, Jesus, he's the Son of God, the Messiah himself, and it's, right? And so for the most part, that's our focus, rightly so. Um, Mark uh, chapter 8, it's, it's the, when we study the Gospel of Mark, it was at that moment where Jesus proclaimed, or excuse me, uh, Mark, Peter proclaimed, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, that the entire Gospel pivots, and as a matter of fact, if you remember that study, up until chapter 8, everyone was asking, who is this man? Who is this guy? Where did he get this authority? What is this guy? And then uh, finally it's revealed in Mark 8. You're the son of God. And it's amazing the way Mark set it up. So we recognize this text because it pronounces who Jesus is. And so some of the other things this text teaches us is kind of in the shadows. So with that being said, let, let's, let's be amazed. Wow, Jesus is the Messiah. But let's also think about what some of the implications of that mean. Verse 13. I'm going to read the verses 13 to 19. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Verse 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Okay, stop. Now, if you are, as I said, a recovering Catholic, uh, you know what, how significant this text is, okay? The reason this passage is significant in Catholicism is because what they say is this passage is the text that establishes apostolic succession from Peter all the way up to the Bishop of Rome today, Pope Francis, right? We talked about this. Pope Francis, because Jesus says, Peter, on you I will build my church. But is that what Jesus is teaching here? That's no, not. And how do we know? Because when you look at a very similar passage in Matthew 18, you can write that down. We might look at that later. When Jesus is talking about um, a brother or sister sinning against one another and how do you deal with disruptions in the body of Christ, and Jesus talks about binding and loosening again. He doesn't use the terminology of the keys of the kingdom, but the same principle of whatever you decide on, I will support if, the, if there are two or three witnesses. He's not talking to Peter at all. In fact, he's addressing directly the church. So this passage is not teaching apostolic succession and Catholics, that's why they have the Bishop of Rome today. That's not what's going on. But what Jesus is saying is, to you, to Peter's confession, notice it was God that revealed it to him, the idea is that he's going to build his church on this supernatural revelation from God of who Jesus is, and I'm going to give, Jesus says, the keys of the kingdom of heaven to you. 
And he repeats that same theme in Matthew chapter 18. So the question we have to ask, something we've always just read past quickly, what are these keys to the kingdom? Because that actually is a very significant phrase. So for that, I want to give you some examples of, oh, in the ESV study Bible, they have a footnote that says this, the key on page 1,279 represents the authority of the steward to make binding decisions in the interests of the king. This is something that was widely understood in antiquity, that if you were the steward, you had the key, and you could literally, literally open and close the, the kingdom or allow people in and out, binding decisions or not. So let's look at the scriptures about this. Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. This is Isaiah's prophecy. And I'll place on his shoulder, he's not speaking of Jesus here, but uh, Elakim, I think is who it is. I will post on his shoulders, he's going to be the steward, the key of the house of David, and he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And notice in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, Jesus is applying to himself the very same principle. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. What Jesus is saying to Peter, to the gathered church, is that I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. And whatever you open, it stays open. Whatever you shut, it's going to shut. Now, I want you to hold this in your minds because I want to take you to John chapter 20, verse 23, when Jesus says to his disciples, it's amazing, um, right here. John 20, 23, if you forgive, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from them, it is withheld. What? It, what? Is Jesus saying you have the power to forgive and, and not? Well, we know ultimately, for, in, in some ways, yes, that's what he's saying, but I want to, I should have just shut up and gone to this next one. Here, listen to what the Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, again, he's talking to the church at Corinth, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Whoa, what is going on here? So, so there's this man in the church at Corinth, and he's having sexual relationships with his stepmom, and the church is like, eh, whatever, we're just going to ignore that. And Paul's like, are you out of your minds? You are a distinct people. You've been set apart, and you're putting up with this? You need to deal with this. So what he's saying is here is that you need to deliver this man to Satan. What he's talking about is put him out from your midst, because as we know from Ephesians, Satan is the power of this world. So Paul was saying, remove him from the body, uh, the body of believers, so hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. In other words, he's going to reap the consequences of his lifestyle, and hopefully he'll repent, but the reason you're putting him out is to make him realize he's not part of the community of God so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, this is a complex text. My point simply is this. What is John saying in John chapter 20? What is Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 5? In alignment with what Jesus is teaching, what they're teaching is that they have the ability to arbitrate, they being the gathered church, to arbitrate who receives the blessings of being in the gospel new covenant community or not. That's heavy duty. They have the power to be the embassy and says, oh yeah, you're one of ours, take it. So everyone knows. Or, whoa, give me that. 
Because that is not what a citizens, our citizens do. No way, man. You're not going to say you're one of us. Right now, could that person be a citizen? Yeah. All that embassy is saying is, that's not how Americans act. We're taking, I don't know, I don't know how Americans act overseas. It doesn't matter. We don't have a standard. But the, the point is, the embassy says, no, that's not what Americans are. And the local church says, no, 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 that's not what a citizen of the kingdom does. You're not one of ours. Jesus said that to the gathered disciples in Matthew 16 and 18. He's reiterating that to the disciples in John chapter 20. Paul is modeling that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Listen to what John MacArthur says in his commentary on Matthew. In other words, he writes, a duly constituted body of believers has the right to tell an unrepentant brother that he's out of line with God's word and has no right to fellowship with the people of God. How can the church do that? Because the church is an embassy of the kingdom of God and one of its principal responsibilities is to recognize its citizens to the foreign nation that it has been sent. Friends, the local church it is the institution that Jesus created and authorized to pronounce the gospel of the kingdom, to affirm gospel professors, to oversee their discipleship, and to expose imposters. That's pretty heavy duty, isn't it? Now, I just want to address something here, because if you're struggling with some of what I'm talking about this morning and in this series, I just want to say it's, it's really understandable. Because by and large, as evangelicals, we haven't thought much about this aspect of being a Christian. All right, I've often said the doctrine of the church is a lost doctrine of evangelicalism. We just haven't thought about the church. Maybe it's because of uh, our, our holdover from the Protestant Reformation. Maybe it's because of the Revolutionary War. Maybe it's because of our kind of anti-authoritarian bent as Americans. Whatever it might be, we just haven't thought about the church. There's a good chance that you've conceived of Christianity when you became a Christian and you were thinking of what that's going to mean for you as opposed to, and, and haven't given nearly enough thought to, maybe what obligations you might have to the other members of the people of God. Right? There's a good chance that, and that was the same with me. I wasn't, when I became a Christian, I wasn't thinking, oh, I've got this ecclesiology, the people of God. No, it's like, Jesus, save me, I'm a sinner, I need help. Right? It wasn't that, oh, I'm thinking about all you other people. I weren't thinking about you other people for years, right? But that's just how it goes. But through our discipleship, we've also never stopped to think about how important the body of Christ is. And, and as I've been thinking about church membership over the years and, and its importance, I'm bringing out my laptop because I just thought of some things this morning and, and I didn't have time to write them down. But so I, I wrote them down real quick. So I. Yeah, if I was better, I'd have this memorized, but I don't, sorry. Um, every time we do a membership class, I always get this question, and it's a great question. It goes something like this. Well, where's membership in the Bible? It's a good, honest question. And as I've been thinking about it and, and doing some research on this, it, it occurs to me that the problem is when we, we use that kind of word, we're looking for something like a club to join, right? Because membership is a club word. And so you got Sam's Club, right? You got LA Fitness, or you got a political party. You have clubs you join that have kind of either a common interest or they provide a service, and that makes a certain amount of sense, right? And so we feel like we've got to join a club, but when you think about it, 
you don't use those words for like governments or citizens of a nation, do you? Right, imagine if I got the talk of the UN and I got done, came off the podium, and they went, hey, Pastor Rick, so how's membership in the United States going? Are you guys running like 345 million members right now? Right? No, we don't talk about citizens of a, of a country that way because we're not a club. So like gyms and unions and Sam's Club have membership, but the church is a kingdom. It's part of a kingdom. We are citizens and, and, and like, though, Sam's Club and those other places, we, we provide services and there, we, we have shared interests, but we have something they don't, a sovereign who's owed our obedience, a king who, who has subjects, right? Sam's Club doesn't have that, right? LA Fitness doesn't have that. What that means is, friends, that the Bible talks about membership in ways that you may not think it talks about membership. It uses language like being a people, being a citizen, being a holy nation, not subscribing and paying your monthly dues, right? Because that's a, see, the, the, the membership word, I think membership is a helpful word because it gives us access to concepts that we're kind of familiar with, but if that's the only word we're thinking about, it blinkers out other aspects of what the Bible's talking about, and we don't see it anymore. Because membership, like I said, is a club word, and we use it because it is somewhat helpful, but if that's the only word you're looking for, you're going to miss the grander teaching of Scripture. And so I realize some of this is kind of hard. So let me use another illustration, a biblical illustration. Just imagine being adopted into a family, right? Lori and I, and we, we've had the privilege of knowing many of our friends adopt children, and the get-to-know-you phase is always beautiful, Right? There's beach days, go to the park, a picnic, maybe Disneyland, catch a Ducks game or something. There's a celebration when the papers are official, and, and there's cake when it's all said and done. But sooner or later, that young child is going to say, oh, I've got chores, right? They're going to be part of that family, and now you've got chores to do. Yes, you've been given the privilege of getting that family name, but you also have the privilege of keeping that family name with all of its honor, expectations, and obligations. And for some of you, you might be thinking, whoa, wait a minute, wait, I got chores? I, I, I'm in this family, but now I've got responsibilities and obligations? There's expectations? Yeah, like any good family. And I know speaking for Jesus can seem arrogant, and you know what? And, and, and especially if, if you're not a Christian, I want you to know, I, I realize how arrogant that sounds, and it would be exactly right if we believed that that authority was just resident in us, but it's not. No, no authority. Friends, all authority is derived authority. There is only one authority, and that is him. Every other authority out there is a derivative authority. It comes from something else. I'm authorized to speak for the Lord because his embassy, the church, has given me the credentials to do so. Right? And last week, if you were at our Lord's Supper service at my ordination, that was an example of that. That the, the, the movement of churches we are a part of says, yeah, you, you, you can speak for the Lord. We recognize that. I am not, neither any pastor should arrogantly be saying, I, I speak for God just because that's what I do. I say so. Mm-mm. 
run as far as you can from any pastor or church that way. The only authority I have, the only authority you have, is a derived authority from God's word. The only authority I have here as a pastor to speak on his behalf is because I've been authorized by the church, by you folks. I've been authorized by his people. You have affirmed my membership, in some sense, my, my citizenship to do this very role. And here's the question. It is also true for every single Christian in this room. So here's my question to you. Has the embassy recognized you? Are you recognized by the embassy? Or are you just running around doing your own thing, saying whatever you want, acting however you want, because it's, it's just you and Jesus? doesn't matter. I hope I'm showing you from Scripture that it actually does matter a lot. Who says to you, brother, sister, you're right on. You're, you're doing awesome. Who says to you, brother, sister, you're off. You're way off base. Who tells you no? Who tells you no? Who tells you yes? Who tells you yes? Is it just your own personal feeling? That's pretty arrogant, considering what's at stake. Has the embassy recognized you? Friends, I hope this concept of biblical church membership shows a, a wonderful balance that I think we need to have in the church today. Biblical church membership is, is the ground between, on the one hand, between um, lawless individualism, everyone does whatever they want, and on the other hand, legalistic authoritarianism, right? Because the antidote to either one of those is Christ's rule over us. That's the antidote to just legalism or uh, lawless individualism or legalistic authoritarianism. And when you look at our world, isn't that kind of where the world is struggling? What a wonderful haven, a, a, a gospel-fueled, scripturally-driven church that takes its membership seriously can be for somebody who, who's in the world looking. Because it's a scary market out there, if I'm going to be honest. When you look around the world... On the one hand, do you really want to be part of this lawless cancel culture Twitter sphere mob of social justice where everyone is living by their own rules and fighting each other for failing against their social codes? Because that's what I see in the world around me. But on the other hand, do people really want to live under some strict moralistic conservative conformist behaviorism? Isn't that what people often see when they look at religious institutions? Neither one of those options are freeing to us. Do I want to suffer under the Puritanism of, of Hawthorne's scarlet letter? <laughs> or, or do I want to suffer under the new Puritanism of Twitter's social justice warriors? No, none of those options are pleasing. But a church that is fueled by the Spirit of God, that takes its role in the world seriously, is, is a light on a hill. A beacon for a world that is growing increasingly dar darker because we have freedom with responsibility, authority, and accountability, individuality, in community. We can have all those. So, Christian, do you, do you want to get yourself a tattoo, drink beer, and watch mixed martial arts? Go for it, right? You're probably like John the Baptist or maybe Nehemiah, right? Are, are you more reserved, clean-cut? You abstain from all alcohol and you only want to read books. Great. You're, you're going to be like Daniel or Samuel or maybe a Nicodemus. 
Maybe you're a mover and shaker. You want to progress the life of the mind and change society. Well, you'll fit right in with a Solomon or Ezra or Paul. My point simply is these men and so many more in Scripture, men and women who were radically different, were also radically the same. They lived for God's glory and to be, excuse me, to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. When we do this together, we actually are free to be our true selves. Not despite our conformity to Christ, but exactly because of our conformity to Christ, we actually realize who we truly are as individuals. And in the church, we do that together. All of our unity and diversity and community, growing and changing to be like Jesus. So different, yet so much the same. That's what we are. When we are gathered together, we are that embassy. And then when we scatter, we are the ambassadors. Okay, I've, I've said this a few times, but okay, that was my introduction. <laughs> next week will be the sermon, and that will be the conclusion of our series. So come back next week. I hope you're here as we talk about practically what does this mean as we look, live like a new covenant community. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we just thank you that uh, your word is rich, and it offers us a balance, God, that my life is, it, it, my life is not my own. That's clear. Romans 14, 2 Corinthians 5, it's, it's clear that my life is not my own. And yet, Lord, we don't have good models of what it's like to be an individual in community, to have freedom, but yet with responsibility, to, to have authority, but yet to be accountable for that. But we look in your word and we say, well, there it is. It's in the church. And yet, Lord, we have failed to take your church as seriously as we should. And, and there's a lot of just lawless individualism running around as Christianity. Father, would you help us to repent of that, to recognize that I represent these people, more to the point, I represent the Son of God. I represent the triune holiness of the creator of the universe. We all do if we are Christians. And that means something, Father. We pray that you'd help us to make it mean something more and more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.